So Chris, the first question that pops in mind is you study engineering, but we all, you know, know you as this awesome sales marketing B2B professional. What happened? What led you there? The funny thing is that I consider myself a business person, right? So I do marketing, sales, product design, engineering, finance. Like that is how I've thought about my career the whole time. I've built multiple side businesses along the way during my career. I studied engineering in college and then transitioned into product management because the company that I was doing writing the code for recognized after six months that I wasn't in the lab. I was out talking to customers and they gave me a great opportunity to sort of like to scratch that itch and keep going. So I moved into product management and then moved into full downstream marketing and demand generation. And then in 2019, I started my own business off of the back of the understanding that I have a different way that I look at generating revenue for businesses that most people do that I think works significantly better. And so we started the company in 2019 and we currently have about 120 people that work here with 60 really happy customers. That's phenomenal. Absolutely love it. And I just read this LinkedIn post of yours today. So you mentioned how we have these diminishing returns in advertising and how important like brand and content creation is. So this is something that you have been doing from the get-go or did you learn that on the go? The reality is the dynamics of the world have changed. In 2014, I loved SEO. I loved running Google Ads. I loved doing conversion rate optimization. I loved sending emails with HubSpot. And as time has gone on, buyers have changed and what they desire to do and the available channels and things that they have to gather information. And when buyers change, we must change with them. And so the reality is that most companies continue to run the playbook that was set by marketing technology vendors from 2011 to 2015 without ever questioning what in the world has changed since that time happened. And so I just... Because of my engineering background, I feel like I have a... And just my like deep desire that and focus on the customer that there are a lot of things that change. And I love when things change because I know that I can adapt and react to them and understand what customers need and then change what I'm doing that works for both them and me. While most other companies and people are going to not even look for the details that I'm looking for. And so I am pumped with change. I'm pumped to be adaptable. I'm pumped when things change because I'm with them. Uniquely so because you... At one hand, have this very in-depth technical knowledge about pixels, about like trackers, attribution models, everything. So that gives you like the first layer of critical thinking. And as you mentioned from a get-go, which I loved, I would love that one of our engineers would just like go out and talk to customers. We usually spend months encouraging them to do that. <laughs> so yeah, it's just like this unique perspective that gives you this credibility, technical credibility, as well as just like what is going on in the industry and how to make sense of it with your own special charismatic words. But how does these lessons, these frameworks translate to Refine Labs? What are some of the proprietary things that you are doing? What makes you really different? First to address, like to talk through your their comment on the, the tactical details and the technical details. The reason that I'm a, an expert in the details is because I actually do it. Right. There's a lot of people. Yeah, it's required. There's a lot of people that talk about giving advice on paid media and haven't run any media or a lot of people that talk about how they should do a podcast and don't have a podcast themselves or parrot the things that I say about creating demand and have never actually implemented it on their own. And so the first step is actually to execute and learn. The reason that I have the insights is through the execution at tons of companies over a very long period of time with the lens that I look through at at 
in terms of how this translates to Refine Labs, our, our company is focused on research and development for your revenue system. Like, how are we going to continue to innovate? That's why you see in 2019, I made a play on LinkedIn and it really worked. In 2020, I made a play on podcasts. We started the State of Demand Gen podcast and moved that through a research and development system from we get like 20 people listening to the first five episodes to now 70, 50, 75,000 subscribers that listen on a, on a recurring basis. And when you hit a couple of those things right, the right timing, the right activity, it fundamentally changes your business. Just like if a company invested in their product and launched a new feature or launched a new platform and they spent 18 months developing this product and they launch it and it gives them a huge competitive advantage, it can fundamentally change your business. And so I want companies to start thinking about how they execute marketing and sales in this way that you actually have to develop things, prove that they work. And if you hit them right, it can fundamentally change your business. When we started the podcast, my company had four employees and a million dollars in revenue. And now we have $21 million in revenue and more than 100 people working here in two years on the back of LinkedIn and a podcast and all of the customer success and product and financial and all the other strategic operational decisions that we need to make. But I think companies get confused at the opportunity here. They look at product and they're pumped to put $20 million to do R&D in their product and spend almost no time trying to actually methodically innovate in how they generate revenue. I think it's super fascinating. I think it's a, a huge opportunity. It's how I look at it. It's how I've executed. When I was just a consultant starting out, there was companies that I was working for. And I, I worked through this exact same system. Figure out what's going on right now. Prioritize what we're going to do with it. Move them methodically through from concept and experiment all the way to scale. And then wash, rinse, repeat. And when you do that, you get compounding impact. As long as you're actually checking that your programs are working, you have the appropriate way to measure it. So... We do that through actually hands-on development with companies. We also generate tons of different research and intellectual property that companies can then use and deploy. And we do in our, inside of our work as well. Totally. I'm absolutely astonished by this feedback because one thing that really differentiates you, at least like from my perspective, is your authentic, not only voice, not just like this personality and charisma, but also the framework. So I don't know if you coined those expressions or you just popularized them, but things like dark socials, broken attribution models by vendors and stuff that you have been preaching for at least like a year since I am like following you. Um, the thing is, how do you comprehend this concept? Is there something that repeatedly pops in the business and then you reflect on it and just like systemize it? Because for one thing that I can tell, you're not generic. No vanilla at Refine Labs. The first step is through the execution and the insights, right? So like, it's not like we're just coming up in a boardroom and like, oh, it's dark social. We actually spent a year collecting data and understanding what are the dynamics that are happening here. We did an experiment. We actually published that on the podcast last week, where we collected tons of different data from people that were submitting on our and booking meetings with our sales team and comparing what did they say about how they heard about us what versus what attribution said. And the fact of the matter is that attribution software is heavily weighted to organic direct traffic and paid search and other captured demand programs and channels. And they don't accurately ref reflect social media, community, word of mouth, podcasts, and other content platforms, which was then the evolution of... I didn't come up with a term dark social, but I redefined it during this time. It was initially used in 2014 to describe when people send messages that can't be tracked inside of Facebook. 
And the reality is that the internet has evolved so much over the past eight years that we've redefined it to the place where B2B buyers through the scale and maturity of the internet can interact, communicate, and validate decisions with peers that don't get tracked by attribution software and don't create intent data. And that creates a very broad definition for potentially hundreds of platforms and channels where buyers are doing important things to make buying decisions that are never getting measured by how B2B companies measure it right now. And that was the evolution of dark social. So you can sort of see insights, experiments and data, scaled execution to sort of like validate that. And then the frameworks come out of that. And so a part of it is because we execute on 60 B2B companies simultaneously at once and have done more than 100 over the past two and a half years. So through the scale, we get massive accelerated learnings. Other ones that we've come up with, companies are, are still like searching for benchmarks every day. I talk to companies and they're like, we need benchmarks for literally everything, even shit that doesn't matter. And the reality is that they'll go out and they'll go into a Slack community and say, we created $2.5 million in pipeline last quarter. What did you do? Then somebody else will say, we created $19 million in pipeline. And the reality is that they're not defining pipeline the same way at all. And the company that's generating 19 is actually generating three when you define pipeline the same way. And so they're going out to serve this idea of how do we get the benchmarks, but not looking at the underlying details of like, you need to have a standardized way to look at pipeline in order to create a benchmark. And so we've developed something that we're going to be announcing soon called the Pipe Demand Data Standards which actually work through and normalize, standardize all CRM data so that companies can make accurate comparisons between one or the other and between a large group of companies to understand how they're doing, to give executives confidence. No executive, Even executives that have high-performing marketing teams don't know it. And the reality is that these benchmarks would show for the companies that are in the top 20%, validate that they're in the top 20% in terms of results and performance, and the companies that suck and are at the bottom they would finally know it and maybe think about doing something differently. So the data standards is another thing. Never seen a company try this or do this. It's like trying to uh, build a like large-scale building without knowing and not measuring in feet and centimeters and inches. You know what I mean? It's not going to work. So that's another one. And another one that I'll mention here before I close out, And in addition to tons of other things we've done, is our concept of hybrid attribution, the insight. Attribution is totally not working inside of companies because they only rely on technology. Heard that from potentially thousands of companies, including some of the biggest companies, B2B companies in the world that are publicly traded. Some that actually make an attribution solution and still can't get attribution right. And the reality is, is because software is not the only solution. It's not the only way to get customer insights to drive strategy decisions. So we developed a concept called hybrid attribution which pulls in multiple data sources, including zero-party data from your customers in order to guide strategy decisions about what's creating demand and what's capturing demand so that you can optimize your programs. And those are three of the core pieces of IP that we've developed. And we're going to continue to rapidly spin this stuff off. Love it. What you're saying reminded me so much of one concept that I went through and over again in blockchain, single source of truth. That was a very powerful concept, but literally what you're saying is that you have to build it, right? That right now it doesn't exist or that we can like make really wrong decisions if we are just like following these silos of data, either like Google, Facebook, like all the usual suspects, or on the other hand, if we just have like our CRM or God forbid only qualitative data at the large scale, that's also not a very good solution. So you're literally bringing multiple sources together and try to make sense of it, if I understood correctly. 
Yeah, totally. And it's the view that I look at it in is really the unique part. I've probably been in more B2B tech Salesforce instances on my own than any other person in the world in the past three years. I've seen more Salesforce data. I've talked to more companies. I've interviewed more CMOs. I've talked to more CROs. I've been inside the data. I've run the analyses. I see the patterns that I see that are obvious because I've seen 30 companies have the exact same data and challenges. But the individual company doesn't know. They just think that what they're doing isn't working because they don't have the pattern recognition that I do. And so as I've started my own company in 2019, the learnings have dramatically accelerated and my skill set have dramatically accelerated because of the scale at which I operate and my team operates, which I think is incredibly unique and I think is the core driver to why we keep developing this innovation. And the interesting thing is that most people know that what I'm saying is right. Most people say that what I'm saying is something that they've been thinking about for five years, but haven't been able to put words to it. And the reason is because I'm not making the shit up. I'm just listening to what people are saying, interpreting their challenges and problems and coming up with better solutions. I think there is also like an additional factor to it. So just like this transparency, this desire to share insights, because you never struck me as like this crazy genius. It's easy to understand you, even if, if you come from another language group or something like that. So you never like really portrayed yourself as this like impossible to connect to like business with database or something like that. There is a certain openness in your DNA, in your culture that resonates beautifully on social media. So in terms of community building and just like, Let's say that we would frame this question as how to overcome a fear of like data leaking or intelligence leaking or whatever, like stopping companies towards openly sharing the knowledge. So I'm eager to learn what your driver is, why you are communicating. Because I've been a marketer in 2016 that was driving massive impact and then looked across and the CRO is talking down on you or not respecting it. When you're looking at buyers and things are clear and obvious, but not getting the respect that that dysfunction deserves, and then looking at it and being like, this is a massive revenue driver. And the main reason that companies aren't being successful is because of it. The main reason companies don't generate revenue, they think there's a sales problem. They think they got to go and hire a sales trainer. They need a new framework. They think they need to buy new technology. They think they need to hire new SDRs. They build another agency, then they hire another agency. They try everything in the book. They try everything in the book to go and figure this out. And what they're actually lacking is a process to innovate in marketing and revenue generation to match what buyers want to buy. Like to me, it's not that complicated, but they try all these band aid solutions. And so my motivation is that. I know how much better of a marketer people could be if they started to adopt these things. I know how much it would be impactful to people to do it. And I recognize that the world is super abundant and that like, what's the point of having ideas if they're not meant to be shared? And so I share my ideas freely, recognizing that most people will like it on LinkedIn or share it with their you know, marketing manager and never even do anything with it. And so most people that consume content don't actually act on it, which is, it's whatever. But the reality is that I want to share my ideas so that people can get better knowing that the world is abundant and a lot's going to come back to me when I do that. 
absolutely love this mindset. It's so profound. It's very like JMC friendly as well. I think that's the future. It's not as if we would be hiding stuff in sinuses anymore. But let's talk about a little bit about your process because you said that consistency is really important. So since 2019, how do you make time for everything? Like what are your system? Do you outsource? Do you automate? How Chris Walker creates content is literally the question. The number one thing that I do as a CEO and business leader is I prioritize it. I recognize that it's one of the most important things inside of our entire business to drive revenue, to communicate our point of view, to attract top talent, to get customer insights, to be able to innovate on our product, to develop competitive advantages. I recognize that those are the benefits of doing it, which is why I invest the time in it that others don't, because others continue to live in the world where all we'll do is just hire more sales reps and SDRs and the revenue will come and we don't need to listen to customers because things don't change that much. And so the first step is that I prioritize it. That's really the difference between me as a CEO and a lot of the CEOs that try to do this or don't even try and don't do it. It's simply a matter of priority and, and time management. Once you get over the prioritization, I have blocks on my calendar on Tuesdays and Thursdays where I'm on a guest on podcast, doing live events, interacting with communities, doing TikTok lives, creating the raw set of content. And then from that, we get podcast content, we get long form YouTube content, and then we have a team of video editors and content strategists that will then break down that content for LinkedIn, TikTok, YouTube shorts, and other platforms. And then I'll actually use my thumbs, I'll download the content and I'll actually post it myself to write the copy. There's no one that's going to write the copy like I can. It's just the way that it is. So I continue to write the copy. I continue to engage in the comments. I continue to listen to messages because it's the insights. People think that creating content is about posting stuff. I post so that people... I hear what comes back. I get the feedback of what people are saying. When I post... And I did it 3 hours ago. And I make a post about why performance marketing is declining and why like companies that are spending a lot of money on Google have customer acquisition costs going through the roof and unit economics are going down, cost per leads are going up. And they finally, I had a company come to me the other day, a CEO, I actually talked to them in 2019, I audited their data. They were spending $650,000 a month on Google in 2019. And I read the email that I sent to him in 2019 that said, you don't necessarily need to work with me, but you got to have someone go and figure this stuff out because you're wasting a ton of money and they did that for another three years. And I just talked to them last week and they finally said, we reduced Google spend from 650K to 100K and saw no negative impact to pipeline. And you know what I said to them? I told you that three years ago. <laughs> I told you that would happen three years ago. They're wondering, how much money did we waste on Google? You could probably do the math, $500,000 a month for the past three years. And then there's the opportunity cost of that, right? So imagine this company stops doing that in 2019, starts taking that $500,000 a month and doing something way more impactful and the compounding impact of that over the next 36 months. And so you just lose a massive opportunity. And there's funny enough, there's other companies that I was having the same conversation with in 2019 that decided to work with me that stop spending that much money on Google and started spending it in other ways and started investing in people and going through a methodical process to innovate. And our leaders in their category now, three years later, when they weren't before. And so I get fascinated by just the that people need to figure it out on their own. I put out the information because I know it's true and I know it's going to help people, but people really need to go through their own journey. A lot of people need to scrape their knees. 
They need to go hire a shitty LinkedIn ads agency because they think that's what we are. And they need to go and see that you just waste money. They got to waste money on Google ads for three years. They got to try and hire a new CRO and fire their CMO because they think that's the solution. And so the solution to me is very clear. Companies don't have a methodical way to innovate in how they generate revenue. I love this spot. Just like one follow-up question. Why do you think this is going on? Is there like fear of missing out? Are we copying our competitors too much? Haven't we achieved the critical mass towards adopting the change and like making more data-driven decision and trying to make more sanity to the business? What do you think that is? Like, how can somebody spend like millions after you told them so three years ago? Because you'll never change until the pain of change is less than the current state. And so when you're flush with cash and VCs are throwing out money and you can't, you don't even get asked to measure the 650. In 2019, they couldn't even measure the impact of the $650,000 a month and they still spent it. And so now you have the virtual event platforms. I'm not going to call out a bunch of other categories, but you got a lot of categories that had a ton of artificial demand created from 2020 to 2022 that wasted a fuck ton of money and a huge opportunity where they could have innovated on their product and how they generate revenue and they didn't. And now when demand's declining, CAC's going up, they just laid off 30% of their employees. Now they try and figure out something to do and it's way too fucking late. But you're still saying that momentum is now, right? People can still change. It's just whether you want to play offense or defense and companies wait until they're on their heels when things aren't going right, when they're laying off people, when they're cutting marketing budgets when they're letting salespeople go, when sales teams aren't hitting quota, that's when they try and think about fixing marketing. The time to fix marketing is right now. The time to fix marketing is when things are going right. The time to optimize and go and invest and make this stuff happen is when you are progressing forward in a positive way. And the way that they just look at it is when things are not working, that then they have to go and fix marketing. And this needs to be a way more proactive strategy decision. I'm just like trying to reflect how is it in association with like the anticipated or already here economic downturn, depends where our listeners uh, live. But nevertheless, what I have noticed, at least like from my practice, is that performance-based marketing agencies are like really chasing the clients, sometimes really wrong types of clients because they are just like trying to keep the lights on, right? So the demand for these services has kind of plummeted. But my bold assumption would be the demand for your services hasn't. What was the spiel? What was going on? Mm. I can't really comment on the relative demand between us and other things. But I, what I will comment in, on is that companies pretend and they tell themselves that they're data-driven when they're not. Because the data is there. The data is there that shows that what they're doing isn't working. I've been in them and seen them. And they just never look at it. Or they look at the wrong data. Or they find the things that make them feel good to continue to doing it based on what's accepted. And so I actually don't agree at all with the idea that executives or revenue leaders are data-driven. I don't see that in practice, which is too bad. And then in terms of the demand, like I personally don't see any decline in this like need that for companies that think they want performance marketing. Because look around, 90% of companies are still scored on MQLs. And what do you get with a performance marketing team? You get an MQL machine. And so until companies change how they measure, they're never going to change what they do. It's the, it's the really the root cause. Some of our IP covers this. Like You get what you measure in marketing. 
and in revenue, right? Same thing goes for how you measure your SDR team or how you comp your sales team or anything. You get what you measure and you get what you incentivize. And the reality is that companies are not incentivizing the right things right now. So we've put together alternative ways that companies could do this that make way more sense, that force the marketing team to get aligned with sales team outcomes, that if they're not driving revenue, then it's going to show that. No hiding behind clicks and website visits and MQAs and leads and lead scoring and all that other bullshit that marketing teams use to hide behind the fact that they don't generate enough results to move the business forward. And so I'm out here saying that when you've done it at more than 100 companies now, when you change how you measure marketing, you get better outcomes. So that's the really the step one. Mm, interesting. Kind of recall another thought of yours, which was very interesting, how CMO and head of sales should be best friends for the lack of the better world. <laughs> because when you have like this ownership dispersed towards two different leaders, it's so easy to finger point, right? People can just like blame each other and, oh, this is not my metrics. This is too difficult to measure or something like that. So how do you resolve it? How did you resolve it for your client? The only reason this stuff happens is because marketing is not delivering. It's not complicated. The company is not creating demand, which leaves the sales team out to dry, trying to capture demand that hasn't been created yet, which leads to long sales cycles, low win rates, low quota attainment, high rep turnover, and other things like that. This is not complicated. When you look at this holistically, what you'd find is that if marketing delivered, you would solve everything. And so companies think that they have, like I mentioned before, they think that they have a sales problem when they really have a marketing problem that just results in issues with how the sales team gets measured and the sales metrics go down. And you'd be amazed how many CROs love marketing when marketing delivers 50% of revenue. When they're, I am amazed. When there's 40-person sales teams getting fed 50% of their number, and then they actually just go out through partner and outbound and a couple other things in order to hit the rest of their targets, a way different story than when marketing delivers 10%. And this is, I'm talking, not talking about MQLs and lead score where you get 10%. I'm talking about buyers that want to buy, that come to your website, that give your sales team the best opportunity to hit their quota because they close at a high rate and they close faster. And so there's like the misalignment in quotes for people is purely driven on the executive leaders not being aligned on what the company should do. It presents itself between the marketing manager arguing with the AE. It presents itself with the sales team and the SDR saying marketing leads suck. It presents itself with sales asking for brochures and other dumb shit as a quasi way to solve the actual problem, which is that marketing is not creating demand. You get all of these symptoms. But in reality, it's just because the marketing team is measured in a way that doesn't align with sales team's outcomes. The marketing team delivers what they're measured against to deliver. The sales team doesn't get what they need. You have immediate friction. The solution here is so simple. Force your marketing team to get aligned with sales team outcomes without being part of the sales team. Whoa, a lot to absorb. <laughs> but hey, Chris, we're too busy. <laughs> we're just like designing this pitch deck. <laughs> excuses, excuses. So a provocative questions. Where do you think in this spectrum product-led growth sits? Is it a part of a problem, metrics and measurement-wise? Or is it a part of solution when you at least have a feedback loop of how business is moving? How do you see product-led growth movement? I see this as a very large opportunity for companies. It's undeniable the fact that when done right, it dramatically changes the overall customer experience. The issue is, and the key thing is when done right. And so there's a lot of companies, specifically early, actually 
not even earlier stage beta D series that have a product-led motion because it helps them raise money from investors. The product doesn't deliver. The customer that logs in there doesn't get value. And instead of people that are going to go and talk to your sales team and close one, go into your product, hit a dead end and never talk to you. And so there are definitely ways where product-led goes wrong, especially if you don't start as product-led from the beginning. I don't think that there's much of like a... I think it could be part of the solution, but it's not the whole thing because in product-led companies, the same problems exist. They run performance marketing into their free trial form. They collect garbage. They do MQL scoring and other things like that. It's just like whether you're in an ebook or whether you're in the product, the motion overall is exactly the same. Marketing creates contacts, serve them to sales. Sales goes outbound to do sales to people that didn't ask to talk to them is generally the flow here. And so it could be the solution. Another thing that I'm sort of not into in how companies do this is they have one team, the growth team, that's focused on how do we get as many signups as possible. And then those companies, PLG companies, do the exact same shit. They spend $600,000. The company that I talked about was a PLG company. They spent $650,000 on Google to collect signups. No impact to pipeline. And so they do all the same stuff, performance marketing, things like that. It could be the solution. You have the growth team that is doing all of that stuff. And then you got the enterprise team that's only scored on demos. And the segmentation between whether they go through product-led or through a demo, as if just because your company's enterprise, you're going to go through a demo and not a product-led offering is ridiculous. So how they measure the teams here forces this type of performance marketing behavior into one of those two conversions so that each team can take their own credit for it, which again, is just another point of misalignment. And it's it puts measurement before what customers need in the customer journey. And that's really the root of it. But idea is really tempting, right? Were you, Chris, at any point of your career, business endeavors, tempted that you would like scale algorithmically your knowledge? Because you did scale it beautifully with content creation. But did you ever like with your background, especially, were you tempted to go like full into SaaS or something like that? So funny story. Refine Labs is incubating technology products right now. But before we just took a technology and built a product, we built a $20 million company with tons of talented people, with tons of happy customers and tons of customer insights. So what we build, we know people want. What a crazy concept. And when we build it, because the company is profitable, we don't have to raise a bunch of money and then be like sort of handcuffed by VCs about how we do it. We can go on our own path. And so this is a concept that I was executing already before I read Rand Fishkin's book, Lost and Founder. But Rand Fishkin talks about this a lot. Build a service company, which then gives you the ability to, to execute our product R&D while customers pay you for it. And so we are in the process of continuing to develop these products and there'll be more to it. But yes, this the executing the service business was always part of the plan in order to get to product companies. But the strategy behind it from a funding standpoint and from getting the product right standpoint are the two reasons why we chose this path. Fantastic. So you are literally bootstrapping it. I started the company when I had $30,000 in the bank. That's phenomenal. Oh my God. 
I never cease to be impressed by you. I think that one of the best decisions that I ever do on LinkedIn is to hit the bell icon on your profile so I get notified whenever you post because your snippets of wisdom is something that makes my base better. And I definitely recommend it to the listeners of Product Lab Podcast as well. But hey, there is a question that I gotta ask you before we finish our conversation in terms of dimension. You know that things are pretty sour for some of the companies in our space. So I would like us to focus on stuff that you recommend. So what are the channels, opportunities, or tactics that would be interesting for our founders, for our marketeers to investigate in a future which seems to be so uncertain? Before we ever talk about the tactics, we need to talk about two things first. The mindset for the founders that are listening to whoever this is, like there's the mindset about what is the purpose of marketing inside of our revenue system to generate revenue? What's the purpose and what's the mindset? If you don't have alignment there, you're not going anywhere. The next thing before you ever think about whether you're going to do LinkedIn or a podcast or anything like that, you got to set up the metrics in a way that makes these programs work. Performance measurements and analytics, how you think about attribution and reporting and modeling, how you think about planning and time lag and time horizons and things like that. Let's assume that you do all those things. But the reality is that companies don't miss on the tactics. They miss on the measurement and the mindset, which then drives the wrong tactics, the wrong tactics and the wrong intent inside of the tactics and the wrong measurement of those. But let's assume that people got that right. They have the right mindset and they can measure appropriately for the programs that they're running. I think about this now. I don't even actually call it demand gen anymore because I think it's a misunderstood term. I think the companies should just frame it up as are we creating demand or are we capturing demand? And then from there, you can look at what are the programs that we have running to capture demand? We got our sales team, we have our SDR team, we have intent data, we're running Google ads, we're doing SEO, we have presence on G2, we have a you know affiliate blog strategy, we run content syndication, we do paid social lead gen. All that stuff is 100% capture demand programs. And then you look at what are we actually doing to create demand? And you look and there's like tumbleweeds blowing across the desert because there's nothing happening in the create demand section, which is the fundamental reason why there's sales and marketing misalignment. Because marketing is in the best position to create demand and the company puts them in a position where they can't do it and they can only capture demand. That's why everything is broken. So my recommendation is focus on what are we doing to create demand? Because anyone can sell a buyer that wants to buy. It's very difficult to sell a buyer who doesn't want to buy. And so what are you going out there to do to create demand? It depend- I'm not going to give exact like sort of exact prescriptive details because I think it's different for everybody. However, I think that universally starting a video podcast and then recording the video from that and having a podcast and video content that can get pushed out on one, two, three channels, I think is the number one thing. Then you could take and run targeted media against that podcast if you're confident the content hits with your target audience. So I think those are the sort of two places that I would start. And then third is sort of a 3.0 is trying to figure out how to run a live event where you can build a community out of it. So I would say that those are three things that don't cost a lot of money, don't take a lot of time, but just require you to understand your customer, go into it with the right mindset, do it with consistency and provide something that's tangibly, radically more valuable to your target customer than anyone else is doing. Your level of clarity is unheard of. 
<laughs> I have never, ever, ever, ever encountered a human being who would be so clear and so profound in their way of thinking. So it's one to free and extension to community. <laughs> Absolutely fabulous advice. So uh, we talked implicitly about education. And you mentioned that the marketing landscape is changing tremendously. And you created one of the ecosystem, one of the community hubs like knowledge centers, which create so much added value. How can people become a part of your movement? Not sounding like a religion here, but anyways, how they can get more of Chris Walker in their lives. Yeah, we're now hosting invite-only exclusive events. So if you're interested in being part of those things, we did our first one last Thursday that we invited a thousand people. There was 280 people live. These are invite-only events where the content doesn't get shared afterwards. Uh, you can sign up to have a chance to be a part of that, refinelabs.com slash waitlist. You can look on social any place with Chris Walker. Typically, I'm on LinkedIn, TikTok, Instagram. And then the State of Demand Gen podcast, which will soon have a new name, but I won't be sharing that today. But yeah, the State of Demand Gen podcast would be the third way. Are you kidding? You are doing rebranding by intern, just like before we hit the recording button, just like commenting, hmm, that's not easy to memorize. <laughs> so you're already on top of that. Good to hear. Looking forward to learn the other name. Chris Walker, thank you so much for taking the time, your precious energy, bandwidth, and wisdom for being an awesome guest in the Product-Led Podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Wish you the best of luck and thanks for leading the conversation of how our industry is evolving. Thanks, everyone. Really happy to help and uh, talk to you all soon. Thank you for listening to the Product-Led Podcast. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with a colleague or friends you know who might benefit. We are always looking at which episodes get the most listens so we know which content to create more of. So if you want more of this particular type of content or style of episode, please share it out. And in return, here's your selfish reason to do this. Uh, we will definitely create more content just like this episode. <laughs> and if that's not your style, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts and tell us your favorite part about this podcast. I personally read every single one of these reviews and it gives me more ideas on what content we should do more of. Happy growing.